Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe, host of Think Health here on 2SCR. In a couple of weeks' time, a few of us from 2SCR will be heading over to New York to attend the New York Radio Awards. And this is really cool because Think Health is nominated for an award in the health category. And we're up against some of the world's best, including the BBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and also Australia's own ABC. So today you're going to hear the Think Health episode that was nominated, which was an episode produced by Ellen Leebeater about why Australia's stillbirth rate hasn't changed in more than two decades. The hardest thing is when the baby's born because the room is silent. I remember just lying there thinking, what on earth happens now? And I just remember going hysterical. Maybe it probably was only a minute worth of, you know, of silence, um, but it felt like forever. Years of wanting, nine months of anticipation, hours of labour, waiting for that moment, your baby's first breath. But for some, the waiting never ends. Every day, six babies without a beating heart. And every day, six families with a broken heart. And the statistics haven't changed in over two decades. Today on Think Health, we're taking an in-depth look at stillbirth. Last month, The Lancet released a new series on stillbirth, which showed some improvements since their 2011 series, but also stagnation. We're asking why. Why are Australia's stillbirth rates so high? Why do we know so little about something that affects so many? We'll hear from two families who have had their lives changed by their stillborn daughters. We'll hear from researchers and midwives trying to make a difference. And we'll hear from a perinatal pathologist who will explain why autopsies are key to reducing Australia's stillbirth rate. To clue you in, a stillbirth is any baby that is born without a heartbeat. It can be caused by something being wrong with the baby, like a genetic condition. Something can be wrong with the placenta. The mother could have diabetes, high blood pressure or HIV, which can all contribute to stillbirth. And then there are the stillbirths in otherwise healthy women. They are what we are going to hear about next. Hi, I'm Dave. And I'm Ali, and we're the parents of our little girl, Harper. Ali and Dave's daughter, Harper, would have turned 10 in May this year. Harper was going to be their first child. We'd already decided some family traditions, like we were going to have reading hour once a week. Once a week? I think it was once a week. I thought it was once a day, wasn't it? I can't remember. I can't remember, but sharing the things that we both loved and had in common that you know that were appropriate to share with a child as they grew up. I think really it's just important. you know it's just excitement of you know like everything the, the whole the whole life of having a, of having a child and being being a bigger family than than, than a couple. Um, you know, I'd see we live in Bondi and you'd see parents with their prams or with their little um, 
baby beyond things i was really looking forward to that you know just cruising ali does laps at, at icebergs and i was looking forward to taking the baby for a walk while ali did laps and just little day-to-day things yeah ali's pregnancy had been very healthy but at 32 weeks she noticed something was wrong uh it was a weekend and we went away for a weekend and i think on the sunday i I had noticed that I hadn't felt a lot of lively kicking and I mentioned it today, but I could tell that, that my baby had changed position. So we just initially thought, well, you know, he or she, we didn't know what we were having, um, was just being a little bit quiet because there was movement, you know, there was changing positions, but not a lot of kicking. On the Monday, while at work, Ali called her midwife. And... Initially, she said, look, I'm sure everything's okay, but you have called me and the way that we work is if you called me, then I think you come in and see me because obviously you feel there was a need to call me. Dave picked Ali up and they drove to the birth centre. There, they used a portable Doppler. They said they could hear a heartbeat, but took Ali to have an ultrasound just to be sure. And there was kind of all this talk about the baby being hard to find and the machine being a little bit temperamental and that's probably as much as I remember because it gets quite dark and heavy after that. Neither of us were looking at at, at the monitor um, and I was sort of cradling Ali's head to try and you know keep her relaxed and the longer that you hear nothing the worse that you know the news is going to be. Um, so there was maybe a, um, it probably was only a minute worth of, you know of silence um, but it felt like forever. Then, the words that would break any parent's heart. I'm really sorry, but there's, there's no heartbeat. And I looked up and I saw the, the monitor and it was clear that there was no heartbeat. I remember just lying there thinking, what on earth happens now? Because obviously I'm still, I still have this baby and I just I couldn't think what possibly would happen next. Ali was originally going to have a natural birth. When she found out her baby died, the midwives offered her the option of having a caesarean or an induced labour. I certainly knew I didn't want to go and have surgery and have the whole thing just end in a medical kind of procedure. But So I was really clear on what I didn't want, but I still, for the life of me, couldn't really think how I could possibly go through with the birth, but there wasn't really any other option. The midwives advised the couple to go home and come back the next day so Ali could be induced. I found in, in my sort of state of shock at the time the idea that we would leave the hospital just ridiculous. And I guess that's a, a point of view probably from a, a, male's, a male's point of view. You know, something's wrong, we're in a hospital, just fix it. Like, you know, we can fix this, we can, this baby is going to be okay. Um, but I'm forever grateful that we did go home because it changed... It changed the whole well, the whole Yes. I well, guess. it separated the two. So there's the day that we got, you know, the worst news imaginable. And then Harper's birth is a completely separate um, occasion. So rather than the two blurring into, you know, this terrible day and then going through with the birth, we were able to separate them. The next day, they returned to the hospital and Ali gave birth to Harper. I think for part of it, like any new parents, you know, one of the first things that we did was 
talk about who she looked like. She had Dave's nose and ears and my mouth. Um, I, I think that's a good that's a good example of how we were grateful that we went home and went through with the birth because there are, there were a few moments in the birth where I can almost say that I I had almost for, forgotten that she wasn't going to be born alive. You know, we had great care. The midwives that looked after us were amazing. Um, we felt like any other parents would feel when they were going through the birth of their child. Caroline Homer is a professor of midwifery at the University of Technology, Sydney. She explains what it's like to be in the labour room when a stillborn baby is being delivered. Most labours are happy and excited because you're going to get a baby at the end of it. But for a woman and her partner going through a stillborn labour, it's a hard labour because they know they're not going to get a live baby at the end of it. We try and make the labours as good as they can for women and um, labours I've been involved in, women were very active and wanted to give, to experience the best they could in a very bad circumstance. I think the hardest thing is when the baby's born because the room is silent and when you're normally at a birth and the baby's born, everyone holds their breath for the baby to cry. But in a stillborn labour at the birth, it's still, it's quiet. Ali and Dave's loss was tragic, but they were lucky to receive excellent care from their midwives and doctors. One of the key messages from The Lancet's latest series is that bereavement care should be provided by trained healthcare staff. Hi, my name's Natasha Donnelly. Um, I'm the mother of Soraya Rose, uh, who was stillborn in 2002. Natasha is one mother whose grief was compounded by the lack of sensitivity of hospital staff. Natasha gave birth to a stillborn daughter, Soraya, 13 years ago. Soraya was going to be her second child. She and her partner already had a son, Callum, who was two when Soraya was born. Soraya was actually her third pregnancy, though. In between the two healthy pregnancies, there had been a miscarriage. I remember being so excited. We already had uh, a little boy, Callum, and I think about six months after being uh, having him, we knew we wanted another child and we tried um, pretty much from six months. Um, I miscarried that next pregnancy and I at the time thought that was the worst thing in the world that would ever happen and it only took about another month or so before I fell pregnant with Soraya and um, it was just so exciting. Um, I was in love with the little boy I had and, and I was in love with being a mother and so it was just so exciting for me um, and we found out there was a little girl um, and you just have all these ideas and plans in your head about what it's going to be like. Like Ali, Natasha had an otherwise normal pregnancy. And also like Ali, Natasha noticed one weekend that something wasn't quite right. The first time I, I thought something might be wrong was a couple of days before that. It was a weekend and I noticed she hadn't been moving very much. Um, and I, was, I remember lying on the, the lounge and... I hadn't felt a move and, and I got up and had something to drink and laid down. I still, you know, her movements really weren't as much. And, and I didn't really worry so much because I thought, well, I'm 39 weeks, I'm huge, she's got no room. I kind of didn't want to bother anybody. It was a weekend, I thought, it's fine. Um, and then they kind of picked up again after a day or so. A few days later, her waters broke. Um, my waters broke at home and it was the middle of the night and we were really excited and uh, called my parents to come over to look after Callum and I was five minutes from the hospital, rang them and um, they said, you know, come on in and I had no idea anything was wrong. 
In fact, Natasha was so excited, she and her husband were taking bets on how quick the labour would be. Callum's labour, my first, was only about four and a half hours, so we were joking around about, you know, this one falling out kind of thing. The midwives asked if Natasha had felt movements with her baby. She realised she hadn't noticed anything, but thought nothing of it because she was still having contractions. The midwives pulled out that trusty tool, the Doppler, but had difficulty finding a heartbeat. Again, I still, you know, I put on a bit of weight and I just thought it was hard for them to hear it. And then they strapped me, uh, put the CTG, the cardiotocograph on it and uh, on my belly and, you know, to find her heartbeat. And they picked up a, you know, a heartbeat. Well, they thought it was her heartbeat. Um, and so I was strapped to this machine um, in bed, listening to it and... Um, I don't think it took very long. You know, I was concerned about how slow it sounded in, in comparison to what a, a baby, a fetal heartbeat or a baby's heartbeat should is normally pretty fast. And this was around about 90 to 100 beats and normally I'd expect it to maybe be 140. This went on for an hour. Natasha asked them to call the obstetrician on duty, keeping in mind this was the middle of the night. And I remember um, being told that, you know, the instructions from the obstetrician were... If the contractions don't get stronger and labour doesn't progress, give syntocinin, which is an artificial oxytocin, um, at about 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning, because this was about 4 o'clock in the morning. And um, I think I probably got a bit more concerned about the rate of the heartbeat. I remember the midwife turning the machine away and turning the volume down and just telling me I didn't know what I was talking about. Natasha became concerned she wasn't feeling any movement. The midwives insisted she was, as they could see it on the monitor. Natasha asked for the obstetrician to be called in. Eventually the obstetrician arrived in to do an ultrasound and, you know, I, he put the ultrasound on. At this point I really didn't think she died and he did the ultrasound and he mumbled something about a slow heartbeat and I said, oh, so there's, there's a slow heartbeat and he just said, no, no, there's no heartbeat. And that is the words that the obstetrician used to tell us our baby had died. It was just as blunt as that. Natasha reacted as you would expect. And I just remember going hysterical and the obstetrician turning to the midwife and saying, get the woman a Valium. And then he turned to um, my husband and I and by this stage, you know, my contractions had pretty much stopped and said, um, well, you can either go home now and let labour progress there or we can give you something to speed it up. And then he went home. Natasha chose to have the drugs to speed up labour and 40 minutes later, Soraya was born. She was perfect to look at. There was nothing wrong with her. Um, she was full size and because it was what they call a fresh stillbirth she hadn't died some time before we knew it had to have been within hours of birth um, she was looked perfect other than you know her lips were a bit darker and her fingernails and you kind of expect that they're wrong and that she'll breathe and you know it doesn't happen listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, on demand at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app.
Today, we are looking at stillbirths and asking why our stillbirth rates have stagnated. Stillbirth rates in Australia, as for many high-income countries, have shown very little or no improvement for more than two decades. Vicky Flenerty is an Associate Professor of MARTA Research at the University of Queensland. She's also an active member of the International Stillbirth Alliance. When we look globally, Australia's stillbirth rate is nothing compared to underdeveloped countries. However, we do have a high rate when compared to developed countries. At 2.7 stillbirths per 1,000 live births, we are 15th on the league table, coming behind countries such as Iceland, the Netherlands and New Zealand. If we could reduce our stillbirth rates after 28 weeks gestation to that of the best performing group of countries, we would save at least, we believe, 300 stillbirths every year. So 300 families spare spared the agony and the distress of losing a child through stillbirth. I think that's an important reduction. Although we should point out that the global definition for stillbirth is 28 weeks gestation and above. In Australia, we count stillbirths from 20 weeks. There are many reasons why Australia's stillbirth rate is so high. Vicky says it's partially lack of awareness. When we say to people, uh, and even clinicians, that six babies every day in Australia die through stillbirth, a lot are are shocked, Not, not only just the community, but clinicians, astounded that there are so many. There's also a lack of antenatal care for women, and Australia doesn't currently have a national system of data to compare deaths across states and territories. And, and particularly the Netherlands, they've seen a fantastic reduction in their stillbirths after 28 weeks gestation in the last few years. And we've had a look at what they are doing. And, you know, one of the biggest things they're doing that we're not doing uh, is making sure that every stillbirth is investigated and evaluated as to the main causes of death and to think about what practice improvements we can make, learning from that death, uh, so that we can reduce the risk for future families. While countries like the Netherlands are investigating each death, in Australia our rates of autopsies vary across the country. Stillbirths are important not just to help us beat other countries on a league table, but it helps the parents of that stillborn baby as well. Caroline Homer again. So autopsies are really important because they try and give us information about why the baby died. Sometimes it's obvious. So if there's been a big hemorrhage from either the mother or the baby's cord, then perhaps that's obvious why the baby died. But for many babies, we don't know. And we need to know more about why babies died to try and prevent more babies dying or to help that family make a decision about their next pregnancy. The problem is our autopsy rate is quite low. It varies across the country, but in some areas it's as low as 30% of women, their babies have an autopsy. And in a survey that was done for the Lancet series on stillbirth, they showed that about a quarter of women in some areas had not even heard about an autopsy, so it hadn't even been mentioned to them. And that's only with the data we have available. Vicky says we're missing about 40% of stillbirth data. But why is the autopsy rate so low? The first problem is consent. It's an awkward conversation to have with parents who have just lost their child. 
clinicians uh, and parents find it a very distressing conversation at a very difficult time. Clinicians shy away for adding additional burden on families perhaps and families find it difficult to grapple with that question. For Natasha, an autopsy was at the top of the list when Soraya died. Consent for autopsy for me was primary, but I said, I just want you to get her in a freezer. I know it sounds terrible, but I need you to, to protect her and get her to an autopsy straight away because how can this happen? I need to know. Whereas Ali and Dave decided against an autopsy for Harper. You know, for our own reasons, we chose not to. Um, some people find that hard to understand, but at the time we thought she's been through enough and whatever the reasons would come back the reasons might be the reason was a i would still say well why did that happen there's no end to the to the why's according to their obstetrician ali and dave were just unlucky there was no uh, rhyme or reason to it our obstetrician told us that um all he could see was we were struck by lightning. It was it was just like a freak, you know, one in a million thing. The pair say they don't regret their decision. Natasha's autopsy was officially unexplained. But the most likely cause was um, what's called a velamentous cord insertion where the umbilical cord doesn't insert directly into the placenta. So it goes from the baby. Normally it goes from the baby to the placenta and it's protected by Wharton's jelly. So it's really thick and, and well protected. Her cord ended, um, the vessels left the cord and they go through the membranes and then into the placenta, so they're exposed. So what they think happened is when she um, engaged, just before my waters broke, she blocked off her own blood supply. And so it's, it's similar to a, a SIDS death is in the autopsy results. It's a sudden, um, unexpected death. And the only finding they had was this velament, these velamentous vessels that, that were, were potentially compressed. A velamentous cord insertion can be picked up in your 20-week scan, but it wasn't routine when Natasha was pregnant with Soraya. It basically means she didn't have to die. An autopsy coming back unexplained isn't uncommon. According to Vicky, around 20 to 30% of all autopsies are unexplained. But it's not as if you will be left with no answers if your stillborn baby undergoes an autopsy. Uh, Susan Arbuckle, I'm a doctor, I'm a perinatal paediatric pathologist at the Children's Hospital at Westmead. Susan is one of the very few perinatal pathologists in New South Wales. She has the unenviable job of performing autopsies on stillborn babies. It is not a simple process. To me, it is really putting together a really complex case, which is probably why, interestingly, I like reading detective novels, as do my fellow people, because each one, to me, is like a different complex case that you have to grab all the pieces of bits of information you can and clues and put them together to produce what you think may have happened for the parents. Susan says everyone wants that single answer that will tell you why a baby died but it doesn't exist. One of the things that people seem to think that with perinatal there should be one factor and this is what killed my baby. But in reality, I think in many cases, it's multifactorial, just as it is in an adult. So in an adult, if you have diabetes and you have surgery and someone who doesn't have diabetes has surgery, the risk of something going wrong for the diabetic is much stronger. If that diabetic also has heart disease and something else, then the risk of something going wrong is, again, higher 
than it is if you don't have any of those contributing factors. So I think the same applies to perinatal cases as well. So if you have a baby who has some degree of growth restriction in utero, then that baby is going to be more vulnerable to any insult than a large, well-grown, healthy baby is. Another big barrier for parents is they worry that their baby won't look like their baby after the autopsy. It has been one of my mantras always that the baby should leave, if possible, looking as good as when it came in. So you can't avoid, if you're doing an autopsy, making incisions. But I always make sure that my incision is below the neckline of any gown that they may wear so that once the baby's dressed, they won't see anything. It's one clean, long incision. Um, We sew it up with a thread that will blend in with the skin so you won't actually see much in the way of there's no black or grey or horrible silk threads there or something. It just blends in with the colour of the skin. Um, Obviously, if you're going to examine the brain, then you're going to have to do an incision. But I always make mine far enough back that if the baby's lying down, you won't see it or you can easily put a bonnet on and cover up any defect. If the baby has a lot of hair, then we carefully comb it so that the hair will come back over the incision line. So we minimise as much as we can. And I do know that the funeral directors, when they pick babies up here, are very, very happy because the babies look really good. Susan also says it's important for parents to know that each baby is treated like a baby. Those of us who do them really care and we really want to find answers for the parents if we possibly can. And we would always treat the babies with a huge amount of respect and we always treat them as babies. We never treat them as anything else to us. They're someone's child. And in actual fact, nearly everyone who handles them do have children So we'll actually look at it from that aspect. They've, but for the grace of God, might go I. Researcher Vicky Flenady has recently been looking at what parents need to know before agreeing to an autopsy. Interestingly, she's looked at whether they have regretted their decision. Our research findings in this new study corroborate with others um, when they've asked parents about regret about their decision, and it seems that parents more often regret the decision not to have an autopsy than those who have decided to have an autopsy. Parents who've had consented to have their baby um, have an autopsy examination are more satisfied that everything that was done could have been done to find out what happened. Whereas parents who didn't, they, they often talk about this doubt in their head about what could be the cause uh, and more often regret that decision not to have it done. Not all of them, but more often. So pregnant women who are listening to the story, I, I don't want you to think that um, this is to frighten you or that this happens is going to happen to you. And of, of course, it's highly unlikely that it will, but it's a reality. And one of the most important ways that you can keep an eye on what's going on with your baby is just to be conscious of what your baby's doing, to, to know your baby well. And most pregnant women know their baby well. So being really conscious of your baby's kicks, your baby's movements all the way through your pregnancy. The grief of losing a child to stillbirth is one a parent never gets over. When the taxi driver or a work colleague asks how many kids you have, what do you say? 
Harper remains Ali and Dave's only child. It's always lovely every now and then some of our really close friends will say, they'll say, well, if Harper was here, she'd be doing this. Um, every year on her birthday, we go for a, a lunch at Icebergs in Bondi and spend about a semester's worth of school fees for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before that, we'll release six pink balloons off, um, off the beach there. Um, and that's just a little ritual. We'll go to church in the morning. Uh, again, we're not religious, but we go to the church twice a year, once on her birthday and once at Christmas in the church that we had her funeral in. Um, and that's really, that's a really nice thing to do. Natasha went on to have two other children after Soraya. You never, ever get over, even 13 years later, you don't get over um, the death of your child. And um, what you do, though, is you learn to live a new normal. And I will forever be changed, and I am now a bereaved mother. Um, I tell, I'm quite honest, people, I have four children, and only three of them I get to tuck in at night. And to me, I've had to learn to live a new normal, and I will never get over the death of her, and I, you get on with life, I guess. But um, it is just about learning to live a new normal. And if today's program has raised any issues with you, please visit sidsandkids.org. Please remember that you should not consider the contents of this show medical advice. If you have questions, go and see a GP. Today's program was produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Leibeter. This has been Think Health. See you next week for more in health research and news.